Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the SFIA Monthly Livestream Q&A. We'll get started in just a moment, but go ahead and start getting your questions into the chat window so our moderators can start relaying those to me as soon as we start. Please try to keep the questions concise and watch your spelling, and try to be polite to others in the chat. We usually go for about an hour so you probably want to grab a drink and a snack, though we'll take a break about halfway through too. With all that said, welcome and let's get started. Good afternoon everybody and welcome to our monthly livestream Q&A for August 2020. We'll get to everyone's questions in just a moment if you want to start posting those in the chat window. We do have a few that we have from last time saved up that we're going to try to get to while you're getting your questions in. Sarah? It's great to be with you Isaac and today we have uh, several questions from last month starting with um, this one. It says, Hi Isaac, I love your work. Do you think it is more likely that we will colonize Mars with under 1 million people or develop space habitats like O'Neill cylinders with the same population. We don't really know how humans are going to fare under low gravity yet. If the answer is not very well, then the O'Neill cylinder for sure. However, the thing about Mars is while it's a great source of resources, it still has that lower gravity, which even if you adjust to, is probably not going to be as comfortable for a lot of folks as we might think. So we could see a terraformed Mars that has billions of people in it, and we have discussed some extreme methods for terraforming, like for gravity, of dumping a black hole to the center of it. But I would just tend to guess on average that we'd see a lot more folks living on neocylinders and probably a lot sooner. Any start-off mammal space is probably going to be relatively small, under a million people for, I'd say, centuries to come. Thank you. Dax1 asked, will the technological singularity come before the predicted year of 2045? You know, the entire idea of the technological singularity is based off of Moore's Law, which is the idea that transistor speed doubles or transistor size halves uh, every uh, two years or 18 months, depending on which version you're going with. That has not really been true for a while, and we're starting to get to that hard limit. You can't really build a semiconductor too small because it's made out of atoms, and we've already got them down to the nanometer scale and not, you know, hundreds of nanometers, just 10, for instance. So you can't just keep that going indefinitely. Now you can obviously start increasing processing power just by making your chips bigger or making the rest thing bigger, but the idea that you're just going to have this takeoff rate with a technological singularity has never really made much sense to me. The basic idea is that if I design an AI that's a little bit smaller than a human, it can turn around the next day and design AI that's just a little bit smaller than itself, and one that's a little bit smaller than itself the next day, or the next minute, and so on. Um, we've been trying to make smarter people for a very long time. Um, we've been throwing more than one person at it. You know, thousands of people at least have been trying to make smarter people for thousands of years. And just kind of looking around civilization these days, I would say that we've had limited success on that score. So I don't think we should assume one AI is going to be able to turn itself over and make a smarter AI the next day. So the 2045 prediction for technological singularity, and I've heard other numbers for it too, is as soon as a few years from now, as soon as a few years from now, a decade ago, and 20 years from now, or a century from now, it could happen, but I just don't think we really look at it from the right perspective. Tangent 1 says, I like to think of gravity as matter radiation. I do wonder if it is the result of one or more of the other forces leaking their force of attraction. One of the other forces in the sense of electromagnetism or the strong or weak nuclear force really wouldn't fit. Um, however, there is a similar notion to that uh, out of string theory, which is the idea that gravity is actually a force that is all across the multiverse, and that's why it's so weak, is it's radiating out in all those directions to cover all of them, uh, which is an iffy proposition, but is one of the ways we can explain why gravity is just so much weaker. Now, the other three physical forces are not equal in strength, but they are, it's a range between about 1 to 100 in difference between all three of those. They're all pretty close together, and that might sound like a big difference still, 1 against 100, but to give you a scale for that, to get to the weakest of those, gravity would need to be a trillion, trillion, trillion times stronger than it is now. Um, and I think I might be underballing that a little bit. So <laughs> it's a very weak force, and it's the only one that's attractive. 
There are also some notions for like dark energy potentially being uh, the repulsive force of gravity and things like that, or anti-gravity, which we discussed a bit of in the, well, the anti-gravity episode, Clock Tech Anti-Gravity, but for right now that's mostly just theory, and uh, I just can't see it really being an electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces don't really fit. Uh, see the antimatter episode for more description on how those two work. Great. Well, it looks like we've got a lot of questions coming in, so let's jump into some from today. First, Jake Krause says, <clears throat> what do you personally believe is on the other side of a black hole event horizon? Mm, more black hole. There's kind of a bit of a bad notion we have about event horizons that comes from well, the Hollywood portrayal of them, and in fact, they got their name from the Disney company. Um, black holes have an event horizon where light can't escape from, but if you start falling into a black hole, you never reach that event horizon, even ignoring that you'd probably be killed by it, even if you were one of the really big ones that doesn't have the tidal forces. As you approach it, the event horizon runs away from you. And if I throw something in at the same time as you, you'd still be able to see that object, for instance. You'd be able to communicate with that object as you fell in. It's only when you get over the event horizon relative to something that's outside the black hole that they would see you disappear over that event horizon. So the event horizon always runs away from you and would keep running away from you right until you got to that central singularity or Planck scale or Planck star or whatever it turns out to be. And potentially there might be other universes on the other side of that. There could be uh, wormholes to other parts of our universe inside of that. Uh, they might spawn whole new universes. There's so many theories for that. And we did look at some of those in the alternate realities and parallel universes episode. Um, I think the wormholes episode too. Very interesting. Humanity First, the Xenos Second says, Do you think we could ever effectively communicate with aliens as much as sci-fi shows show, like Star Trek, or are aliens just too different? Uh, with the 40k reference in there, I would say that uh, probably... Well, we do actually have that episode we recently did, Talking of Aliens, and that, that inspired me to write another episode, and I cannot remember what that's called at the moment, Terrifying Aliens. Um, out for October 34th or 27th, right before Halloween. Talking to aliens, and we did look at that more in cryptic aliens too. You could potentially talk to them, but their mindset's going to be a lot different than, than ours. It's going to be a completely different track if they exist to be able to talk to them at all. We'd expect some similarities. You know, they're going to have a similar evolutionary pathway if that's how these things worked out for them. But um, there's so much variation in that, so it probably... The best you'd hope for is that they would be like talking to a very small dolphin or elephant, but given the differences in, in so many factors of their culture as well as their evolution, you'd be lucky if there was much in common beyond just the general belief that uh, you should both try to survive. And uh, that's not really a lot of shared ground when you think about it, since if you both have the shared goal of survival and expansion of your species, that might cause you to bump heads a bit. <laughs> Um, thank you, Thought Criminal, for your donation. And their question is, what are the odds that there will be another dark age within the third millennium, such as Natalie Carlin's theory of the age of Malthusian industrialism? Hmm. Uh, well, there's two things on there. I generally don't like the term dark age. Um, there was obviously some technological loss in Western Europe after the fall of the Roman Empire's western side, at least the fall of Rome. But I think that tends to get it, you know, history's kind of made a bit out of that. That's maybe more than it was. There was actually a lot of science done in the Dark Age. Uh, in some ways, they were more advanced. And again, that was just Western Europe that we're talking about. Um, it was kind of a romanticization, uh, very literally with the tone of that word, of the Renaissance period trying to draw roots back to the Greco-Roman era. Um, and that's debatable. You ask a different historian, you different answer. But... The other one on that is the Malthusian cataclysm idea. Um, I'm not familiar with that particular version of it that you mentioned, Malthusian industrialism, but I am not a very big fan of Malthusian beliefs. Um, and uh, Robert Zubin, who most of you know from Case for Mars, um, he did a book uh, that a friend of recommended me called Merchants of Despair that actually really, really bites into the idea of Malthusianism uh, pretty heavily and points out that generally when population increases, you actually get higher productivity out of each individual person. There's obviously a hard limit on that. If you have a set amount of resources, no matter how efficient you get at using them, if you can't increase them, well, there is a point at which the pie cannot be cut into too many more pieces. So the basic premise is fundamentally right. If you keep doubling your population in a finite universe, you're eventually going to hit a Malthusian catastrophe. But that's also assuming that people are stupid. And um, 
we overdo that a little bit. People are not stupid. If they see that there is going to be hard times ahead if they just keep having more and more people, they will start to take measures. And indeed, you could argue that the Western civilizations have already done that in places like Europe, where they are at pretty high population density. But uh, by and large, I do not tend to like the uh, either cyberpunk or post-apocalyptic take on uh, civilizations falling under their own weight in Malthusian cataclysms. That's an opinion, obviously. Okay, we have several questions here from Zachary. What are your thoughts on Neuralink? And secondly, rigid airships for Venus. And also thank you to Zachary for uh, a donation as well. Thank you, Zach. Uh, well, we did talk about both of those in Mind Augmentation, uh, that episode, and in the, you know, I can't remember if it was Winter on Venus or Colonizing Venus that we looked at the airships thing in detail. I remember Sergio Patero, he's one of our animators on the show, uh, he did some amusing, sorry, amazing, well, amusing too, renderings of some airships and air platforms from uh, for that episode, for Colonize Venus, um, and for our Sky Platforms episode. I like the idea of rigid airships as a way to get a basic settlement or outpost on Mars, because you can float in the upper atmosphere there. And the nice thing about Venus is because it's got so much carbon dioxide, you can float with just oxygen or nitrogen, you don't need helium. And if you're floating up the place where they're going to be nice and buoyant, you can actually find an area where the temperature is livable. You can't see it as the major way that you colonize the place unless you're going to go for a full-on shell ward. In which case, I think you'd rather do something rigid as opposed to simply going for a lighter than aircraft. Um, what was the other part? Norlink? The problem with Norlink, and there's been a lot of progress on it, it's amazing. Uh, in that mind augmentation episode, I did link the uh, current resource they were doing on that in some way form. It's amazing what they've been able to do, like plugging 3,000 connections into one mouse's brain. But there's still a lot of progress that needs to be done on that for it will be anything that we can, well, even use on animals, let alone humans. But it does show a lot of progress, and it's it's the first real progress on it. So I think it's taken from science fiction to science, you know, science fact. And I really do think we'll have things along those lines inside the next decade in commercial application. Maybe two, but... Um, We'll start using it for medical purposes, things like helping out the sight impaired or, or uh, you know, audio impaired, probably a lot sooner than that, and might see a great use in prosthetics. Alexander, uh, I'm sorry, I don't think I can pronounce the last name properly, Podkev, says, can you do an episode on reanimating the dead as a Halloween special? <laughs> we already have a Halloween special for this year. It's terrifying aliens. <laughs> um Oh, that actually does sound like a fun episode. <laughs> get that one. Uh, um, Thought Criminal also made a donation and has another question. <laughs> what do you think of the effective altruism movement? Organizations like the Center on Long-Term Risk and Suffering Abolitionists like Brian Tomasic. I'll be honest, I'm not really familiar with those. It strikes a vague recollection, but I, I'm, I'm hesitant to speak because so many organizations and I could be mixing them up by now. Um, if you want to get with me after the episode, just post that in the comments and I'll come back and find it and give you a better response than I'm not sure who you're talking about, hopefully. <laughs> Daniel Alcantara Perez says, Do you think biotechnology will solve mankind's shortcomings before we begin space colonization? Potentially. It kind of depends on what you mean by, well, biotechnology and space colonization are both things that are very incremental. You do them in bits and pieces. And you could actually have one develop faster than the other. And, um, well, sometimes technologies give each other good feedback. Advancing the one, advance the other, paired up together so they really advance very quickly together. Other times you could have bits of uh, delay because of it. As an example, we actually came up with um, with solar power before we were using the internal combustion engine regularly. Um, but it was very weak, it was just copper oxides, and we hadn't discovered semiconductors yet. If somebody had noticed that semiconductor principle back in, say, 19, well, let's say 1895, before Henry Ford invented the car, we could easily have ended up doing a lot of more research into improving those and uh, batteries and start doing something like electric cars in the you know, 1910s or something like that. And so that might be an example where one technology kind of displaces another to some degree. Um, I don't see, though, that biotechnology and space technology would actually tend to interfere with each other. Indeed, cybernetics, um, the term we always think of for attaching a machine to a human, originally meant uh, just augmenting people with either biotechnology or medical technology for the specific purpose of space settlement to places like uh, zero gravity, the moon, or Mars. 
So I think they'll be very tied up together. And I think the one big difference is everyone's pretty much in favor of space colonization. Uh, opposition to it is generally just it's expensive. Right? That's about the extent of people's objection to colonizing space. Uh, most people are in favor of it, at least especially if the price can be brought down to a reasonable amount. Uh, biotechnology is a little bit different. There's a long range of potential objections you have to deal with them from you know ethical to cultural, whereas space colonization doesn't have to be interfered with those. So you could easily see the one stagnate as technology while the other advanced because it had more enthusiasm, less resistance. Moondog says, hi, Isaac. What is your academic background? Hmm. Uh, let's see. Um, I was a homeschooler, as my wife was as well, until I was 16. I started college at Kent State University. I was a physics major there. I graduated top of my class uh, in, what was that, two, that that's actually on my ring, in 2001. Getting old. <laughs> and, Getting old uh, if you yeah. forget what day you graduated. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting. I started grad school the week before I graduated. Um, so uh, when I was 20, I graduated from college, top of my class in physics at Kent State, and I stuck around there to start working on my doctorate. Uh, and I actually started that right before I graduated because my professor who uh, was quite anxious to get into biotechnology at the time, research, and so we were starting to play around that that summer. And I stuck around there until late 2003 when I joined the Army uh, during the war. So I never did finish up the doctorate, and to be honest, I have very little desire to go back to it, though I finished up all the graduate coursework on stuff like electromagnetism, quantum, etc. I just did not have the energy or passion to stick around to actually do a, a thesis on a specialty, and I have to say that I've only ever briefly considered actually going back and doing that at some point. So beyond that, um, I just keep studying like I used to do before I was in college and during college. So We have a donation from Travis Neal. Thank you. And a question from Albert Jackinson. Hi, Isaac. It's nice to be here again. Given the recent prominence of online education due to the pandemic, what are your thoughts on the future of education in terms of format, curriculum, etc.? It's actually somebody better qualified than me to talk about that. <laughs> um, online education, just looking at from when I know in Ohio, we're obviously trying to do that with the virus uh, pandemic right now. And we are trying to get classes back in. That's going to vary from state to state and country to country. But you're going to see an online component to that. Uh, we already saw it this spring. You're going to see more of it. It's kind of advancing the timetable on a lot of these things. And as you know, a lot of the sponsors for the show are online education um, uh, companies like Brilliant or Skillshare. So we all seen a big improvement on those. And I remember in the late 80s and early 90s, we had some very basic computer programs we used. And those were already kind of fun, like Math Crunch or Oregon Trail. Um, and so they are nothing like what we get nowadays, and that's going to keep improving. One of the things I would expect to see a lot more of is kind of going away from the, you know, uh, not 9 to 5, but whatever time kids go to school at, sorry, homeschool. Um, Seven Usually to three, like eight, eight, eight <laughs> o'clock to three. That kids go Monday to Friday, and um, uh, and not for the summers is that we probably see less of that in favor of a couple of days of instruction and maybe some of it online because you still need that one-on-one -on -one or in-person stuff a lot too. Um, but uh, we we'll have to see how these things develop, and I suspect. Crisis often brings opportunities and, and you know, necessities of other invention. I suspect we'll come up with a lot of innovative ways of doing online education mixed with in-person education in the next year or so. Uh, at the same time, in 20, 30 years, absolutely. But we'll start seeing a software that can do things like read the students, you know, eye interest, their contact with the text they're reading, or little things like the temperature of the body and say, this student is finding the material they're reading or watching right now boring. And you can say, okay, well, this was the history of X, you know, version one. Let's switch over to version two. You know, same information, different presentation format or focus. And it tries that out. And the student says, I find that boy. And it tries out version three. And they say, oh, and they're wrapped attention. Little tiny things like that, and especially building up, build up data on the individual student, might allow us to do a lot more of the one thing that is not available to us right now with online or automated education which is that student-teacher feedback ability and that ability to find out what the student is enthused about and teach to that. And that, I think, would be the biggest thing we could probably see as an advancement in education technology, hopefully in the next generation. Sooner or the better. <laughs> Melancholy says, if there was another full-scale space race between the United States and China on colonizing the moon, what do you think the overarching goal would be and who do you think would reach it first? Um... 
I mean, if it was, well, the, the first thing to point out is the United States already reached uh, the moon over 50 years ago, so first place is kind of taken. Um, the biggest reason why no one has done it since then is not a lack of technology. Russia could put someone on the moon within a year or two when we did, maybe a little longer um, at most. China, inside the 80s, if they really wanted to, probably could have. They took a while to develop their space program, but they certainly could now if they really wanted to. And that's one of the things we're going to look at. Um, we'll continue the Becoming Interplanetary Species episode. That will be uh, our episode three of that is on the moon uh, and talking about what we need for the bases there. And we've done quite a few episodes on the moon, so a wonderful topic to discuss. Going to the moon is not a problem. Finding a reason to go to the moon to justify the cost and risk is a problem. And it is one of those uh, catch-22s. The moon is so useful to outer space. Um, but you have to have a development in space first. And to develop that stuff in space cheaply, you need access to the moon and its resources, and so on. So it's going to be a slow progress of back and forth. As to who gets there first, um, whoever does, in terms of like a, a permanent base, you know, it might be a private company like SpaceX, and other countries just rent stuff from them. You know, they just lease territory. Um, or, you know, lab space. It might be the United States, it might be Russia, it might be China, it might be the, EA, yeah, the European Space Agency. It could be a number of people. And whoever does, kudos to them. You know, it's uh, nice to have a race that encourages people to work on it harder, but uh, we all win, regardless who gets there first. Thank you, Lucas Spranger, for your contribution. He says, thanks for everything you do. There are very smart people thinking we are in a time of accelerating technological progress. Others think we are in a time of technological stagnation. Where do you land? Well, I, I would have a hard time understanding how we would get the idea of technological stagnation. Potentially, we might be plateauing out, which, uh, and I think you do ultimately plateau out with technology. In a finite universe with set physical laws, you are eventually going to figure out what all those laws are, and after that, you'll start developing all the useful technologies for them. We've only been doing science for 400 years in a sort of real sense, and really only the last century have we been having, you know, thousands of people who made a full-time uh, profession. Um, there will be kind of eventually a maximum on science and technology in terms of understanding this universe. If there's multiverses or parallel realities we can get access to, that knowledge can keep expanding. But in a finite universe, there is a finite set of rules and knowledge you can have about it. Um, as to whether or not we have accelerating technology, that is arguably the case, but it sometimes involves cherry-picking. As an example, you could look and say, well, we've doubled progress on this. Say, well, how are we measuring this? And so one of the ways that we very rarely measure this is by looking at how much money is spent on it and how many researchers are in that field. Once an area looks like it's interesting, like computers, we tend to dump a lot of money and people into it. And often that results in a big boom to your next uh, gains, some of which are very easy. Others, it's, you know, it's like a mountain. The first five or six feet are easy. The next five or six feet are even harder, especially if you're trying to jump. <laughs> so, um, you know, you have to be kind of careful how you're measuring progress on things of like a technological scientific nature. We are clearly making progress. That's about all I can say. Mm -hmm. I guess this would be a similar question mm -hmm. from Will Reynolds. He says, do you think we will see manufacturing mm -hmm. of electronics in space in our lifetime? Yes. Um, I mean, depending on how old you are, obviously. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, in our episode of Kickstarting Space Industry, we brought up several options that might be very appealing as economies. Um, and obviously one of the ones that I, as Kickstarters, that I thought was very good was power satellites. Um, another that's often suggested, of course, is the ability to actually bring in gold or platinum from asteroids. Um, the ones we do in terms of manufacturing, these might be secondary knock-on effects. You know, you've got the industry in place for manufacturing X, Y, or Z in space, uh, and so you can easily rent out or more cheaply establish a facility up there to make things in space. And electronics are very based on semiconductors and crystals. And zero gravity not only gives you much better growing conditions for crystals in most cases, it also offers you some options in which are not possible under gravity, period. So, yes, once we can actually get away with manufacturing electronic components in space, we'll be right there doing it. They're all things that we just cannot do on Earth that we can do in low gravity. Reese Jones, thank you for your contribution, says, Space is hostile. How do we protect against radiation? Remembering the rocket equation and being on a planet with a thin atmosphere and no mag uh, excuse me, magnetosphere, Mars? Mars, uh, Mars has some atmosphere and magnetosphere and actually is enough to provide a limited amount of protection compared to something like the moon. Um, 
the most dangerous place near us to really be dealing with it is actually not empty space itself, but short bands like the Van Allen Radiation Belt or the Magnetosphere of Jupiter, because it collects in ionizing radiation that like, bounce around inside there. Um, charged particles, we know actually with magnetosphere, but uh, and even antimatter in some cases. But uh, the biggest and best way to shield yourself against radiation is with just regular or dumb matter. Um, there are certain types of radiation you ought to want to use multiple types of layering because it's more effective against some. But as an example, the bigger you make your spaceships, and we make them very tiny right now because we have to do everything on the cheap, the bigger you make your spaceships, the cheaper it is to shield them because of the cube square law. If I make a ship twice as wide and, and radius and all those things, just doubling it in size, it now has eight times the volume and cargo capacity, and it has four times the surface area to protect. Well, if we can stuff eight times the mass on there and shield it to the same thickness for four times the mass, we're only spending half our budget of, of matter on that, so we can just keep building the ship bigger and thicker skin. Still have to pay the fuel bill for that. For things like space stations or things that are actually on planets, this is less of a big deal, especially if you're resource harvesting off some place like the moon or an asteroid and don't have to pay the fuel bill to get to that location, or at least a lower one. For spaceships, it's always going to be a problem. And that's why Bigger is often better in cases like this because you could store your spare water in the outer hull as your tanks, right? Water is a great motmo. It's a great shield against radiation as well as a moderator for nuclear power, which we'll talk about in two weeks. Um, but as a whole, you can just store your extra material, extra equipment on the outside of the hull and keep your organic or radiation sensitive materials in towards the center. And that's an advantage you get from having a bigger ship. So that's one way you can help with radiation shielding on the cheap. As to other options like powerful magnets around it to create your own magnetosphere, that helps against charged particles. And that's one way to avoid those, but not other types of radiation like gamma. So you use a combination. Ah, well, maybe big is the answer to the next question from 4096. Big is the answer to every question. <laughs> he says, <laughs> what is... isn't working, you're not using enough of it. <laughs> he says, what is the best way to protect the mm -hmm. spaceship's crew from the cosmic rays? How effective is a magnetic field at deflecting the particles from the crew compartment? Uh, if it's a powerful enough magnet, if you're dumping enough energy into it, and for instance, electromagnet, um, very effective against charged particles. They have to be charged. That's the big thing about it. It has to be you know, your hydrogen atom or you know, a muon or things like that that actually will interact strongly with the electromagnetic field there. Now, it's not nearly as much as people would tend to think, though. I can't remember the exact power budget to create a ring around Mars that would be as good as our own magnetosphere, but I think it was like 10 to the 16th watts, which is a lot of power. Or it was less than that, but it was a lot of power, but it was well near what the solar budget would be. So if you're trying to terraform planet, you put like mirrors and shades in place, you can create that magnetosphere a lot cheaper. And I think it was a lot less than 10 to the 16th. Um, but it was a lot of power, but nowhere near what we'd expect it to be um, compared to the effort you need to like restart the core of Mars or spin a place up like that. Now, as to spacecraft, it can be done a lot less, but the key to you know bouncing those around is you need a very big field that starts spinning them out of deflecting them all the out or needs to be very strong um, and we have a lot of options for that and of course we can power them with solar power because the nice thing about space is that it's not dark it's always you know daytime in space so your solar works very well there uh, for powering things like electromagnetics to shield the ship thank you simon farmer for your donation and simon's simon. question is when will we see an episode on the interdiction hypothesis solution to the fermi paradox Interdiction hypothesis. Um, I'm trying to know if we actually did do an episode on that. I'll relate it again in a moment. And Simon Farmer, I think he's actually one of our folks who's been around since like year two. I'm, every so often I recognize one of the names. I hope Jackinson earlier. Um, okay, so interdiction hypothesis is one of the Fermi paradox solutions that relies on the notion that they just don't really let. Uh, well, first read the quarantine hypothesis, which is the one where we're basically kept in a zoo or something similar. They are all out there, but they don't want us to know they exist or get out. Interdiction is a little bit different. Interdiction is uh, agreed upon self-quarantine, which is basically the idea that you know several species will all have very large demilitarized zones where they just stay away from each other. They, are, they agree to expand only so far and to limit contact to either none or very, very little. And the usual notion on that is that they have come to believe that there's just no real way to have peaceful relations on a day-to-day -day basis. And this comes to, well, Kind of Douglas Adams' notion about the babelfish, his uh, um, little fish video that would tell you about what other languages were being spoken and just translate them to it. And it said the babelfish 
by causing uh, easy communication has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in history. Sometimes, um, getting to know people does not make you want to spend more time with them. And it was concerned that aliens might just be so different than us. And again, that's something we'll be looking at, terrifying aliens, that the better we got to know them, the less we want to do with them. And that's kind of a core concept of interdiction hypothesis, is that you can be at peace with almost anyone if you're far away from them and have very limited exchanges. But as to whether or not you'd be good friends with them if you're actually sharing borders and space and tensions and regular interaction and entertainment, we don't know. And the interdiction hypothesis basically works around the idea that you'd be leaving bubbles around any planet you found that had sentient life on it to give them room to expand, and that's why we can't heal them. It is just such a big gulf around every planet. It looks like we have time for another question here before the break. Um, Andre Jones, thank you for your donation, and he... She says, my friend likes sci-fi books with an emphasis on warships, warship battles, and complex science-rooted concepts. Which book or books would you recommend? Well, there's a lot of them. Um, you know, the go-to for military science fiction uh, is often David Webber's Onivorce, uh, starting with On Basilisk Station. And I'm very fond of that series, though, only up to maybe about book eight or so. He is very, very good there about both having good characters, a good setting, and a very plausible you know, he takes the special sciences that they hand wave into that they allow to like fast night travel and he makes sure that they're using it properly. It's not like a lot of times they have basically magical technology where they ignore all of its other beneficial effects. Um, other ones are good. I was very fond of uh, Malky Cooper's, I can't remember what the series is called, Malky Cooper's sci fi series. <laughs> well, if you Google Malky Cooper, that would be the series you'll come up with. Uh, it covers very well with cybernetics and all the expansion of humanity into the stars. I'm trying to think what other really good sci-fi ones there are that are both military, sci-fi, and um, and very scientifically accurate, because you often have to hand wave that as a secondary focus. Um, Alistair Reynolds does pretty scientifically accurate stuff, but it's not really what I call military sci-fi. So there are a lot of options. Uh, the publisher Bain, uh, B-A-E-N, tends to be one of the big ones for military sci-fi. And there's um, a friend of mine operates a site called Military Sci-Fi. I cannot remember what the actual .net or .com is, but that's a good one. So, uh, lots of options there available to you, and uh, we'll be back from the break in just a moment, and then we'll get to more of your questions. While we are taking a quick break, it's a good chance to get some questions in for our moderators to grab and forward to me. And if you want to increase the odds it will get answered, and be nice to our mods, try to keep it clear and concise, and watch the typos. However, we won't get to every question, and normally I come back in a while after the live stream to watch the replay and to answer any questions left in the comments. After today's show though, we will also be having a Discord live chat on the SFIA Discord server, linked in the video description. Though we do ask everyone to enable the push to talk option and respect everyone else there. Which is to say, if you have already asked a question, try to let others get theirs in before asking another, and don't talk over top of other people, especially when they are asking a question or I'm trying to reply to it. You can also stick questions and replies in the text channel attached to the audio chat. Again though, please remember to go into your settings on Discord and change them to the push to talk before joining the conversation. Hey everybody. I'm Jerry Gern. I'm a scientist and an engineer out here in San Diego, and I'm a frequent SFIA editor and occasional uh, script co-writer. Um, Isaac has stepped away to take care of some important futurist business that he needed to take care of, so I just wanted to pop in and say hi. Um, I uh, also write science fiction and fantasy stories in my uh, free time, and um, a year ago Isaac strongly encouraged me to start my own YouTube channel and start posting some of my stories. So a bunch of you listened to Momentum, uh, thank you for all the great comments that you posted on that one. Um, I was really uh, pleasantly surprised and overwhelmed by the reaction to that story. Um, in the past year I posted a bunch more stories, uh, the quarantine has given me lots of time to write, um, so the most recently the most recent story that I posted is called Paleontology. It's a uh, slightly dark but fun uh, time travel story. And uh, I think it's a good time for a time travel story because the uh, epidemic has a lot of us wishing we could go visit a different year for a while. Um, so anyway, check that out. Um, 
I think Isaac is just about done with that futurism business he was uh, he had to go take care of. So uh, just quickly, uh, my channel is called Jerry's Stories because I'm Jerry and on the channel are my stories. And uh, be sure to check out the uh, upcoming episode, Fermi Paradox, The Phosphorus Problem. It's a really cool episode. I wrote the chemistry parts and I learned a lot about the astrophysics parts from Isaac. It was a really good uh, collaboration. It's a cool episode. So be sure to check that out. And everybody stay safe. Uh, have a great time. and. Back to Isaac. Before we get back to the show, I want to take a quick moment to thank all the volunteers who help out on that show, from the mods helping out in sending me questions for our chat today, and who will be helping moderate our Discord after our show, to all the other mods on Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, our website IsaacArthur.net, and of course YouTube itself. In recent live streams, we've often featured folks who help out on script editing and graphic design. And of course you get to see those folks who help make the episodes in the credit roll on each episode. The show wouldn't be half as good without their help, but that's only part of the show. SFIA isn't just about me talking about some topic for half an hour each week, it's about all the discussion and questions and random brainstorming all of you do afterwards. We've built up a phenomenal community in terms of size, courtesy, and cleverness, and it's a wonder for me to behold. But none of that would be possible without all the moderators helping keep things organized and running. If you're not already part of one of those communities, I suggest popping in and giving it a try, as they're always full of stimulating conversation, and while you're there, give a quick thanks and shout out to all the mods for all of their hard work. And now, back to our show. Okay, and we're back. Very good. Now I just have to figure out what questions we had here. Um, Scott Seabrook says, Hi Isaac, just curious as to whether you see any potential utility in Roche limits. For instance, using Neptune to break up Cupid belts, uh, I'm sorry, Cupid belt objects or creating dust shades around planets or etc. Love your work. Um, you know, that's actually one thing you might use them for. I tend to like the idea of using them to break up, uh, well, for Kuiper objects, one of the big ones that's out there is the comets, of course. And you really don't want to slam a planet like Mars with a six-kilometer-wide comet if you can avoid it. So if you can put it into a slow orbit, <clears throat> where it can just kind of roach limit, break down, and then start falling down, that might be an approach. The other hand, though, is that's likely to set you up a very large debris field. And in the case of Terraforming being so destructive in the first place, you might say, screw it and just drop the thing right down there and let it burn up and crash. Get some new crater lakes. Uh, and there's already water right on hand for them to fill up with. Um, that's not true, they vaporized the water as it came down. <laughs> but uh, I would say that for Roche limits, the debris issue is what's going to be a constraint factor of using them. Uh, potentially, for objects that are very loosely held together, you might surround them with a much stronger structural material and just kind of take them into orbit where they just kind of break up inside that. But to be honest, I don't think there'll be too much utility to them that I can think of at this time. Hiran Ibro says, Isaac, hi, I just recently started watching your videos. Where do you get your inspiration? Um, you know, over the... My cat just came in. <laughs> Bit of a side note while I'm thinking of where the inspiration comes from. I made the mistake of installing a cat door in my office so my cats could come in and out while I was recording. And... Um, I found out from my nephew uh, Abel that there was also the perfect height for toddlers to stick their heads through too. So that's and their arms and various other yeah. sundry parts of their bodies when they want to wave and smile. So my I great big mutant it. cat, <laughs> my great big gold mutant cat Flax is calling inside. He's going to come jump up on me at the moment. Uh, <laughs> he's polydactyl with paws, literally about this big. Um, I'm sure that's part of the inspiration. Oh yeah, well actually, cats are often inspiration for me. Uh, inspiration. Um, science fiction is a lot of it. You know, I grew up watching Star Trek and Doctor Who. Uh, Star Trek The Next Generation came out when I was seven or eight, and uh, I fell in love with it in Deep Space Nine. I was a big fan of Tom Baker, so was my mom. We used to watch him on PBS all the time. You know, Carl Sagan. Isaac Asimov, of course, is a big one for me, too. Uh, he is one of my two namesakes. I was also named for Newton, but uh, my mom was a big Asimov fan, as was my grandpa. So, you know, he had over 500 books, and I guess we probably had at least 100 of them in the house. Um, and then college, and then the internet forums, talking with the audience. I'd say these days at least 50% of our episodes are inspired by something either one of the audience members uh, says, one of the polls, or one of the production team suggests, and it just sticks in my head. Uh, you were just hearing from Jerry Gurren a moment ago, and uh, we have in 
three or four weeks the uh, Fermi Paradox Phosphorus episode, and that was his brainchild. He said, you know, why don't we do one of this? He sold me on it. I think he was able to sell me very easy on the Fermi Paradox idea, but inspiration comes from all over the place, and I'm grateful for all of it. Don CDXX says, Isaac, would you consider the Great Attractor as a possible techno-signature of intelligent life trying to keep matter close as cosmic inflation pushes it all away? You know, we did an episode, uh, what was it, Dark Flow and the Great Attractor was part of our Dark Trilogy of uh, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and Dark Flow, none of which are really related to each other in the term Dark, which in physics is kind of like we call a prototype, you know, something X, you know, the M or the X8, right? It just means prototype. In physics, Dark basically means we don't know. Um, the thing about the Great Attractor is it sounds so mysterious, especially because it's in the zone of avoidance. And I say it's actually the second zone of avoidance. The first zone of avoidance, uh, this is what you're trying to avoid with telescopes, is the ground. You always want to avoid pointing your telescope at the ground. The other place you want to avoid pointing your telescope at is the center of our galaxy, which you know the big Milky Way belt, because it's so hard to see anything through that if you try to look for other galaxies. The Great Attractor is in that direction. Um, and so it is possible it's a technological sig- you know, signature of some species that's decided to get really aggressive or clock tech in terms of dealing with the expansion of the universe. But it's more likely that that's just the rough center of the supercluster complex or uh, other large object that's made of atomics for the ones at the uh, scale of uh, hundreds of millions of light years. But that's probably just its rough center and we're getting pulled slightly towards it. Problem is we're actually not getting pulled towards the center of it. And you can see that episode for a lot of the details, but we're still going away from it very fast. It's just we're going away from it a little bit slower than we're going away from everything else because it does have a pretty impressive amount of gravity. But it's just enough for us to notice it more than anything else. FT says, relating to the Boltzmann brain, if there is a chance of nearly anything happening or being created over time, there must be a chance that after death we could be reincarnated. Yeah. In in any system that has an infinite factor to it, whether it's infinite time or infinite space and matter... um, there's only so many things a particle could be assembled into, right? So, same as you shuffle a deck of cards enough times, you are eventually going to get it right back in the same order you started with. You could shuffle matter around enough to exactly recreate you. And you might actually, and you'd also have a case where you exactly recreated you with your memories of, oh, I thought I just died, and you thought you jumped forward in time. We look at that more on the Infinite and Probability Issues episode and some of the conceptual problems of that along with our Boltzmann Brain episode. Um, for instance, you will have a universe in the multiverse or an infinite period of time where someone is sublimely convinced they have created a faster than light wormhole technology, when what they've actually created is something that if you step through it, it kills you. And yet somewhere, by freak coincidence, there just happened to be an exact copy of them pop out of the location, just out of the void, right? Uh, by random quantum chance, the odds of which are insanely tiny, like 10 to the 10 to the 77th or something along those lines, a huge number. But it's still finite, so in an infinite universe, it will have happened. And they will also be the occasion where having done that, that person builds that generator again, and in one version of that, he does successfully not destroy himself, but repeal again, and every time people use this, it works, even though it absolutely does not, just by freak luck. Um, that's what happens when you start playing with infinity in cases like this. Um, in any finite, any finite probability in an infinite universe or either infinite space or infinite time, something will happen over and over and over and over again. But that's still such an insanely tiny number, and our best evidence right now says that we do live in a finite universe and a finite period of time. Thank you, Sean Asby, for your donation. And his question is, what are your thoughts on the Bob Lazar phenomenon? Do you think he really saw alien spacecraft from another solar system? Possibly. Um, You know, when it comes to eyewitness testimony, and we'll actually be looking in mid-October, I believe, at uh, at the three Navy UFO footage sites, because that won a poll, <laughs> so I'm stuck doing it. Um, I normally try to avoid covering phenomena, specific you know, phenomenological events, because um, I don't like to impugn witnesses. People see stuff. Some of them might be lying, some of them might just be insane, but probably they saw what they saw, and it might not be what they thought it was. Quite probably it was not. But at the same time, I'm just not in the habit of calling people liars. And I'm not in the habit of just assuming that real things are mundane. Because all of science is based around finding those exceptions to where the real thing really is weird and finding out why it's weird. Um, on the same note, though, you know, Bob Lazar is a bit of a controversial figure. And uh, I am very doubtful a lot of the transuranic uh, materials he's, he's mentioned discussing. So. 
Thank you, Maris Tudix, for your donation. And she says, thank you very much for the endless hours of entertainment and knowledge. Could we use very powerful lasers to manipulate matter over great distances, this way building probes on distant planets? Yes and no. Optical tweezers are one way to move all matter around that's very appealing at the atomic level because we just can't really make anything small enough to get in there if that's made out of hard matter. Uh, problem is, light, even in a laser format, we tend to think of a laser beam as a tight beam that stays as a tight beam forever. It does not. It keeps spreading out by inverse square law, same as normal light does. It's just very focused in to begin with. Um, and uh, if you were trying to manipulate, say, a star, if you you know if you got two laser beams, one at Alpha Centauri and one at uh, back here, very powerful, very focused beams, you could find something that was an angle to both of them and, and give it push and start that laser beam around. That would be insanely difficult to coordinate, and given the power that was involved with that laser, you'd probably be better off just sending a probe out there and do it, but it's possible. you know. And again, the nice thing about light beams is they do travel at the speed of light, and no probe can do that fast. So, The next question we have is from Brayden. Isaac, do you think quantum computers could get their own version of Moore's Law? Something like processor speeds doubling every X amount of years or even months? Yes and no. I think that we will see a big expansion in quantum computing and already have. Um, and uh, the problem is Moore's law, well, as Moore himself said when he invented it, is not a law. You know, it, it relies on essentially a coincidence. And even if you look at the original data, right, it was not doubling every couple of years. It was going up a decent amount, going up another decent amount. And if you kind of co-fit it, it roughly was doubling. And if you zoomed out a little bit more, it wasn't. You know, it's increases happen as discrete events. And... You know, you're not going. You find something unless you triple the technology that year, and then you go four years without any improvements or minor refinements. So, and and this is something I like to warn people about with things like technological singularities. Don't don't curve extrapolate. You know, the you cannot just say, well, double this year and double next year, so it's going to always keep doubling. This is just not how this stuff works. Discrete individual events took place that made these improvements. If they coincidentally happen to double, you know, over X period of time. You zoom out for a little bit longer, look at a wider time scale, you see that it did not in a longer period of time beyond that. This is just not the progress that works. It caused me to make some very bad assumptions to predict the future, I think. Brick Muppet, thank you for your donation. Their question is, Mercury is kind of hard to get to, but does Mercury's fast relative orbit give any meaningful delta V advantage to launches from that planet? Is it enough to affect viability mm. of mining there? Mm. You know, it's just something people tend to miss about models when we just have a launch window to models is when we shoot spacecraft off to models, they actually have to be shot backwards and slow down to catch up because models go slower than us. Um, Venus goes faster and more could be faster yet. Orbital speed is basically related to how close you are to an object. Um, the closer, the faster. Now, that makes Mars a very interesting place to potentially be building spacecraft and winging them out into space, especially because you could build a big laser platform and orbit it there, right, powered by the sun, and push that thing real fast outside the solar system, too. Uh, for interstellar purposes, not that useful. For interplanetary, it might be a very nice place to be resource harvesting. But the thing to remember is that something's speed, its orbital speed, is related to how close it is to the sun, because it has to be going that fast not to fall down. As it goes further away, gravity pulls on it and slows it down. So, you know, you launch it out of there, but it's trying to escape the sun's gravity well at that point. It will slow down a bit. Uh, as to mine itself, that's essentially, it comes down to the the escape velocity of Mars, which is, I want to say, actually a little higher than, than Mars for Mercury. But uh, Mars and Mercury, same surface gravity. Mercury is a little bit denser than Mars because it doesn't have any of the light elements. They're all burned away. Jonathan says, have you read any new sci-fi, and what's your favorite book from the past five years? I don't know if they need five years, maybe five days. <laughs> <laughs> I actually am beginning to read as much as I, I probably should have the last couple of years. Um, I'm trying to think what the most recent book I finished was. Uh, actually, the most recent book I finished listening to was a Black Company novel, which is fantasy. Um, let's see, and I was a 40K novel I'd, I'd listened to recently, too. Um, new sci-fi. Um, hmm. There is actually a ton of it. I'm just trying to think of what it actually is of late. And the next one that came to mind was uh, I was helping Jerry uh, proof his one story of late um, that we mentioned during the break. Um, hmm. 
Favorite sci-fi novel of the last five years might be a better one, and I'd actually say it was probably The Prefect or its sequel, uh, Elysium Fire from Alistair Reynolds, which is probably not a surprise. I mean, I was a big fan of him, um, but uh, that would probably be my favorite of, of late for sci-fi. <laughs> Zurich Zorowski says, Isaac, why don't we have any space hooks yet? Just why? In your opinion, and of course I will appreciate, and greetings from Poland. Um... You know, I'll cover all this Jacob Grigor, who's the longest volunteer on the show, is from Poland, too. Um, and uh, I just want to thank him real quick, because we've had people come and go over the years as volunteers to get busy. But Jacob's been here, first one to volunteer, still here every week. So, um, let's see. And I completely forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> why, do, uh, why don't we have space hooks yet? Oh, um, sky hooks work best in tandem with uh, with hypersonic aircraft and we did look at some of the scramjet options for that in the space planes episode and of course you could potentially do that with a mass driver that's uh, you know shorter and faster and easier to build than anything that would launch something right to orbit um, so Skyhooks got looked at a lot in the Hastel program in 2000 and I think we probably would have been pushing more towards them except and I was talking earlier about how sometimes an improvement to one technology can slow another down SpaceX has done such an amazing job with reusable rockets that the space plane scenarios and skyhook scenarios have been kind of pushed to the back burner for a while. Um, but I mean, if we suddenly saw a massive improvement in our capacity to manufacture our carbon nanotubes or graphene at industrial levels, I think they'd make a rapid reappearance. But I'd say that's probably the biggest one point in the back right now, ironically, is that we're doing so good with reusable rockets. <laughs> Chris's question is, how are we determining the mass of whole galaxies to detect dark matter? It seems that it would be hard to pin down an accurate mass for so many stars, dust, and rocks. This is his first question. Thanks, Chris. It is very, very, very hard to pin down the mass of galaxies. Um, you can start looking at some of the research from uh, Hubble Zero in the 1930s, and I can't... Was it Zwicky? I think it was, it might have been Zwicky. was the one who first proposed dark matter. We have a number of ways that we estimate, and what we try to do is compare them separately, and if they actually match up these different estimation patterns, then we usually know we're on the right goal. First and easiest way is to look at a bunch of galaxies and guess how many stars there are based on their luminosity, their brightness, and how that inventory comes up, and say, based on that number of stars, this galaxy, which has you know half again as much brightness, is uh, you know half as bright, half as massive. That would be one way to estimate. Another would be to look at two galaxies that are relatively near each other and see how much they are curving towards each other from gravity as opposed to expansion from Hubble expansion. Uh, another way we can look at that would be satellite galaxies that are around them, much smaller ones, and see how quickly they are orbiting by seeing the redshift on them compared to the redshift of that other object. And this is one of the many ways we estimate them. We just keep building up guesstimates and, and locations and comparing them against each other and then slowly correcting as we go. Dark matter is the tricky part, though, because most of the matter in the universe is dark. Most matter is not in stars. And this is before we even get into dark matter specifically. We had to estimate how much it was from gases and things like that. And we can estimate how much gas there is by basically looking towards an object and looking towards another object twice as far away, for instance, and seeing how much its light's been diminished in a certain frequency, you know, that gets absorbed, spectral lines of hydrogen, for instance, and say, well, this object has more of it absorbed, it must be twice as far away, that kind of thing. And so we got a pretty good idea of what the density of local space was in terms of matter that wasn't in stars, and it wasn't enough. Uh, we started noticing that even in the 1930s. Uh, and so we said, well, we've got all this matter. We've estimated by so many different methods of regular matter. So we've got something that has a gravitational effect, and we can see it by how it causes the galaxies to spin or attract to each other. We can see the gravitational footprint of them, and we can see no other footprint at all. Whatever it was, was dark, dark, dark. Not like infrared or in the radio spectrum or absorbing things. It just had no interaction with the universe whatsoever other than gravity. And this is where we get dark matter from. And that is the <laughs> basic origin of that name. And so basically, by seeing the gravitational impact of it, we see the stuff. And all we can tell right now is it tends to clump up around galaxies, but it doesn't really clump up in the same way matter does because it doesn't interact with itself, so it can't slow down and form stuff the way we normally do with things like accretion disks or rings around plants that eventually form an object. Jonathan wants to know if you ever rewatch your old videos. Very occasionally. Um, you know, what's interesting is I almost never watch a video after I render it. Uh, that's why the production crew is so grateful. I'm so grateful for them is they go back and check for errors because I can't stand watching them when I've just finished working on them because it's it's I've just been watching it on and off as I did the clips together. 
Um, but uh, I do like to rewatch them occasionally. Usually, if we're doing another episode from the same series or on a similar topic, I'll go back and see. You know, in any given episode, we have a lot of material that just doesn't make it. it uh, it's in the draft or it's in my head and doesn't quite make it to the draft even that I want to talk about, but there wasn't time. And so I'll go back and listen to an old episode on a parallel topic and say, well, here's the basics I need to recover, but here's the other stuff I didn't get a chance to talk about, and I'll go and do that. Or sometimes we'll actually go back and watch the stuff from uh, season one or the original episode just to kind of remind myself how much progress I've made in terms of visual and audio quality. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, it's a humbling experience at times, too. <laughs> Fallen God, thank you for your donation, says, Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Love your show. How long do you think it will be before we attempt an O'Neill cylinder? Um... I guess it kind of comes down to we're talking about full-blown Sono, and what usually people mean is the Island 3 one, um, but uh, the really big one. Or if you mean something a little bit more modest, for given value of modest, like the Kaplana uh, station that uh, Brian Vostig designed. Um, <clears throat> and uh, something like that, or like the Gateways one, that's just a basic gravity one that simulates either moon gravity or Mars gravity or Earth gravity. I think we'll see a very basic mock-up of that inside the next generation or so. Uh, but the bigger ones, even Kaplana weighs like 10 megatons. It's a lot of material to take up to space. Um, you need to be able to start resource harvesting off the moon. So I would say within 10 to 20 years of when we actually have a serious operation set up on the moon, or potentially on asteroids, same difference for that context, then you'll start seeing big space stations getting planned and built. Until then, it's just cost prohibitive. Johnny Wings says, will you ever do a tour to other countries for talks or their sci-fi conventions? We'd love to see you in Ireland. Hey, I want to go to Ireland. Do we? Okay, so if this is <laughs> in Ireland, maybe we'll head out there. Um, <laughs> I've actually only done one speaking engagement in, in public at all uh, since this channel started that I didn't even do a show. That was down at the uh, Carnegie Science Center last year. Uh, Dan LaVoy invited me down to give one of their talks. Um, and uh, I'd say... I was supposed to be going down to Dallas, Texas, uh, to uh, to give a talk to the uh, the NSS, the National Space Society, at the uh, International Space Development Conference. Uh, however, COVID. So <laughs> until that's done, I don't know. I've been trying to actually, you know, open myself up to actually going and giving live talks a little bit more often, but uh, it's it's obviously had a bit of a footnote based on I would say the odds of it depend very strongly these days on whether or not it's you know, a good vacation or interesting vacation spot. Because, or if I can convince you to go. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Which is probably much more likely to happen if, if it's a good vacation spot. But uh, until the virus is done, you know, who knows. Uh, Salman Sulman says, if you had an unlimited budget for an experiment in space with current technology, what would you do? For an experiment specifically? I mean... <clears throat> I could argue that since we need to find out what the impact of low gravity is on humans, that building an O'Neill cylinder spinning at, at motion gravity levels is an experiment. So that would be what I would end up building. The other one, of course, would be a giant mega telescope like the planetary refractor lens we looked at in well in the mega telescopes episode. So I was, people occasionally say I, this was a clickbait episode that wasn't what it was on the uh, you know what the title says. And I don't get that very often because no matter how strange the episode sounds uh, for our show. It's usually exactly what's printed on the can, like colonizing the sun. <laughs> but um, mega telescopes would be the episode where we talked about the really big telescopes, and that would be one of the things I would do for strictly scientific gain. Uh, otherwise, I'd come up with the reason to either build an orbital ring or a O'Neill sonar. Isaac Bordeaux, did I ask this one? <clears throat> it says, um, what do you think is the most accurate representation of an interstellar empire in science fiction? No, no. Uh, the most accurate, oh, that's a hard one. Um, I will occasionally joke that the most accurate size spy empire I've ever seen at the interstellar scale is Warhammer 40K's Imperium because they really get the idea of ancient behemoth that just is a mess from everybody being, you know, years and years of signal lag and time and tens of thousands of years of passage of, of, of historical events and, you know, populations in the quadrillions. They managed to nail that part very well in a dystopian way. In terms of interstellar empires, uh, House of Suns by Alistair Reynolds kind of looks at that idea, uh, though they're not so much interested in empires, just the idea of a continuity of a civilization over hundreds of thousands of years and light years. In terms of other ones, it's... Hmm. You know, the problem with trying to write science fiction that has to do with sub-like travel is that you either confine yourself to a given solar system or a handful of them for a specific event, 
or you pretty much give up on the idea of an empire. And so you don't really see too many set that way because the writer wants to show you a galactic empire. They don't want to have one where the phone calls take a million years. So I think that's probably why you don't see too much realism with that. If you've got fast night travel, then any number of them. The uh, Empire from Foundation series by Asimov, Dune by Isaac Asimov, uh, just name another, Dune by Frank Herbert, another big ones, uh, and those game series in terms of the, uh, I can't remember what it's called, the uh, league he has in the later books after Endos game, though. That's a very good one by Austin Scott called. So there's a lot of them out there, but they all assume fast night travel. So. Sam Biswas, thank you for your donation. It's, and uh, his question is, is it really possible for someone to become a literal god just by being a genius? No. The question itself was inspired by a quote from Rick and Morty. Uh, you know, interesting aspect of Rick and Morty is that I, I usually think Rick's character is designed to be kind of intentionally in despair of nihilism. But, uh, you know, anything that's finite cannot make itself infinite by what you think of as normal logical progression. Now, whether or not they could pass for a god to, say, the ancient Greeks, anybody nowadays who's got them, you know, so has access to a bunch of technology and a time travel machine could do that. So it just depends on what you mean by that term. Sapiat says, what if we made the underground cities by building above ground on Earth and then cover the series of t- cover with a series of tunnels with dirt and maybe make some ponds above some clear or frosty glass to get light down there for a sense of day and night? You could do that, yeah. To some degree, you might always see that skylining effect. But the thing is, the light that we get from the sun is very, very bright. You don't even tend to notice that when you walk in from outdoors that you've walked into a room that's got about 1% the light of it, and you still think it's fairly bright because your eyes are logarithmic. It's also got all sorts of frequencies we don't really need, like the infrared. So if you're building up layers and layers and layers of places, you probably will skip on the you know the uh, skylights in favor of artificial light in most places. But you might do that. You might have the big you know open dome at the top that lets light into various facilities going a long way down. Or you might just build up so much that ground floor effectively becomes underground. Um, and uh, we look at that in mega cities, which is next month, <laughs> this month, sometime soon, the mega cities episode. Uh, where we look at uh, basically how these really huge cities we see in science fiction might tend to actually operate. I think this was actually part of that question. Mm -hmm. Um, It goes on, what if we used partial shading and solar evaporated water piped to the deserts and released during the day into dew condensers and during the night time out in the atmosphere to get liquid water? And if we use Fresnel mirror walls to heat up large parts of Russia and Canada without actually causing global warming, making them hot enough to use as temperate climate farmland, as well as balloons to get run light into the Arctic Circle by having the light coming from an altitude where there is light. See the colonizing the Arctic episode. <laughs> um, you know, we did look at a lot of those options uh, for that. And, and if you've seen the Earth 2.0 series, we do cover a bunch of those options like reclaiming the deserts or warming up the cold regions or subterranean civilizations. And that those are actually uh, three of the episodes, along with Sky Cities, which was fun to do. Um, but... Essentially, you've got short-term and long-term options. You know, you could be putting lenses up in space to block sunlight or redirect it to different parts of the planet, for instance. Um, but uh, or balloons. You know, it could be just you put a big balloon floating up there that's got a mirror on the surface. You do want to be a little bit careful changing around the temperatures in places like the Arctic, though, because you can have some very unexpected effects on the ecology from things like that. But at the same time. Um, you know, you want to get water in the desert, it's very cheap to pump water up and into a continent, and you can just cover it with plastic or glass in greenhouses, grow food inside those greenhouses, and then take the water that's evaporated from that salt water you pumped in there, and use it to irrigate fields around there. And that's uh, the idea of a, a greenhouse evaporation or sea greenhouse evaporation that some folks have discussed. I'm going to wrap up with just two more before we go to the Discord after hours, mm-hmm. and the real Boliath wants to know, what do you do during the break? Uh, sometimes I just go get another cup of coffee. Sometimes I, I, but basically I just take a bit of a break. Um, and, uh, I'll leave it to everyone's imagination what I run around doing. And, uh, yeah, so I take a break and catch my breath. And I don't know if I ever mentioned it. So if you, you, we have a fair amount of light here, not as much as studio lights we usually have, but you get really warm, uh, with those. <laughs> I usually have the air conditioner blasting right before this. So it's loud as heck. And I turn it off the show. And lastly, Jordan Morley wants to know, what, who are your favorite scientists and futurists? 
You know, I was actually a little bit surprised recently because I, I was looking up a futurologist I didn't recognize, and it put up a Wikipedia list of, of famous futurists and futurologists, and it was about 150 people on there, and I was one of them. Um, so, uh, and I did recognize about half of them. Uh, there are a lot of them, you know, that you can look at, and I'd say Rob Zubin would be an example. Very Kurzweil, though I tend to disagree with him a lot on the singularity aspects. Um, and then it depends on what you mean because so many sci-fi authors would count, uh, and I can't remember why his name's not getting to me right now. Um, Vono Vinge, he's another good one for uh, for computers and that sort of thing. And you can think of Alistair Reynolds as one. Um, there are a lot of them out there, and I don't really have a personal favorite uh, other than maybe just by bias Isaac Asimov for the classical days or Joel's Vaughn's, you know. And, uh, you know, it's the joke is you're a good futurist if you're right 51% of the time. So, <laughs> uh, for those of you uh, who will be joining us for the Discord after hours, um, Please do make sure to turn on your um, push to talk button before you get in there. I'll probably be in in about 10 to 15 minutes. Then we're starting at 5.30 officially. And uh, we'll probably run to about 6.30. I got company at 7. So we'll try to get a good hour in there. And uh, thank you so much for joining us this week. And if you need that link, it is down in the description. And uh, we will see you on Thursday. So that wraps up our live stream for today. But we are not done yet. As mentioned, we'll be doing an After Hours live voice chat over on the SFIA Discord server, linked in the video description, where you can keep asking me questions live for an hour or so. I'll be in there shortly after the show ends, but if you miss me, feel free to leave questions in the comments on this video and I'll try to get back in this evening to answer them. I hope to hear from you there, but if not, I'll see you Thursday.